Welcome again to RUF. RUF is a, is a Christian ministry here at AB that exists for both um, Christians and for non-Christians. And so regardless of where you find yourself spiritually, uh, we really think that this is the place for you. We, we want this to be a safe and a warm and welcoming place where you can explore the truth claims of the Bible uh, with us together. And so if you have a um, Bible, I'd invite you to turn it open to uh, the first chapter of Genesis, uh, or you can follow along on the sheets. It's just really important for you to have the text in front of you either way. And uh, as you're flipping there, as you're kind of referencing the sheet, I'll just remind you that here at RUF, this semester, what we're doing is we're exploring uh, what the Bible says about relationships, dating, relating, and mating, and procreating, and other things. So, um, uh, so that's what we're doing. And really what we're going to do for the first few weeks of the semester is, is sort of try to build a theological framework. And, and then for the rest of the semester, for the, re- the last two-thirds of the semester, flesh all that out and in, in pre- in all the practicalities of what that means for dating, what does that mean for singleness, what does that mean for marriage. So these first few weeks, we're just trying to um, build a theological framework. And we're going to begin here in Genesis. Chapter 1. So I invite you to look there now. Uh, I'll read um, three verses out of Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. If you would, I I would like for you to pray with me before we consider this together, okay? So let's pray. Uh, Father, as we um, focus in on this passage, you know that even after uh, a week and a half of being at school, there are some people in here who come in here uh, just feeling buried with guilt, um, there are people who come in here uh, excited about what you have to say to them. There are people who come in here bored of just one more Christian thing to go to. Uh, Father, there are people that come in here um, depressed and angry and uh, searching and don't know what to do with um, their faith that seems to have been rocked since they got to school. Father, for all the different conditions that we find ourselves in tonight, I pray that you would meet us, that you would teach us, that you would be our teacher because uh, you know that we have no hope of understanding apart from you. Uh, So Holy Spirit, please come, be our teacher in these moments now, we would pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did something um, pretty revolutionary this week. I uh, signed up for Twitter. Um, So I've officially caught up to 2007, and uh, as I sort of learned this whole new system of hashtags and trending, I mean, I don't know what any of this stuff means. I'm learning, as I'm learning this whole new system, I'm learning a lot about myself as well, meaning that uh, I know I'm very impatient. I'm learning I don't like a new system to to have to learn, And, and that's really, I mean, it's kind of the way that the world works, is as you learn new systems and new people, you really do kind of learn about yourself as well. I mean, this is why so many of us connect with music, right? I mean, you hear an artist and they are singing about an experience they've had or are having, and they just perfectly articulate what you're feeling, you know, and they, they, they give you um, a vocabulary for, for your feelings. 
something you never had before, and you're like, yes, you get me. And as you're sort of learning this, you know, artist and kind of their experiences, you're learning more about yourself as well. Or, or you know, if, if you're having conversations with somebody over coffee and you, they're telling their story, inevitably, as you're learning about them, they, they phrase something in a certain way that totally illuminates something in you. And you're, you're learning more about you as you learn about them. And this is just sort of the way that the world works. But it also works the same way as you relate to God. As you get to know him, you get to know more about yourself as well. And so what I want to do tonight as we look at this passage is I want to show you that we learn two things about who God is, and then we learn two things about ourselves in light of who God is. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What are the two things we learn about God? Here's the first thing that we learn about God. Well, it is that God is not simply a he but that he is a we, that he is an us. Look at verse 26 again. Uh, Then God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, question. Who is God talking to? Because this scenario happened before God had created people. So who's he talking to when he says, let us make man in our image? He's talking to himself. He's talking to himself. Now, I know we've only been in classes for a week and a half, two weeks, but I want to invite you to come back to eighth grade English class with me right now. Come with me to English class. It's safe, I promise. Um, Look at the grammar of this sentence, because in some sense, it doesn't really make any sense. Okay, so look at it. Uh, Let us, which is plural, make man in our image, which is singular. It doesn't really fit. It doesn't doesn't say, let us make man in our images. It says, let us make man in our image. That would be like me saying, okay, I want everybody in this room to come together and let's make a statue. Let's make one singular statue of us. Let's make one statue in the image of all of us. Be like, I don't know how that would work. Okay, So, so what's going on here? We are getting a little hint in this passage of what gets unfolded throughout the Bible and made more clear as the Bible progresses, and that is that God is a trinity. The Bible's conception of God is that he is a trinity. Uh, he, he is plural in his persons, singular in his essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who are one, each equal in power and glory. Are they three? Is it one? Is it one? Is it three? Yes? No? It's, it's a mystery. I don't know how to pack it, unpack it any more than that. But that's where the Bible's conception of God is that he is a community of persons. Why is this so important? Here's why this is so important. It, it is because the claim of the Bible, and really if you think about it, it, an enormous cultural assumption is that God is love. Right? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian. If you believe in God, you at least believe that God is love. But think about that. Love has to have an object. Love can't just be this free-floating attribute. It always has to have an object. So if I were to say to you, I love, you would be expecting me to finish my sentence. It doesn't make sense for me to just say, I love. If I said, I love lamp, you would, uh, you would say, yes, that makes, that makes sense. There's, a, there's an object there, right? <laughs> love has to have an object. So what do we mean when we say God is love? We mean that if he is intrinsically, eternally love, that means that he has been, 
He has had to have had something to love before anything else was created, namely himself. If you're tracking with me, here's why this is so important. Because every other conception of God makes him relational or loving as an afterthought. Meaning, if God is not a community of persons who have eternally loved each other from eternity past, he only began to love when the first thing was created. The first angel, the first person, the first whatever. That's when he began to love. So at some point in time, there was conceivably a time when God did not love. But that is not the Bible's conception of God. He is eternally, intrinsically loving because he is himself a community of love. Some of you are going, what is he talking about up there? Here's why this is so important. If this is what we learn about God, that he is a community, that he is a trinity, what do we learn about ourselves then? We learn about ourselves then that we are made in the image of an us. And why is that so important? It's so important because that means that we are therefore hardwired and formatted for relationships. It is built into our DNA. We are designed and formatted for relationships. Let me try to prove this to you just from some examples. Have you ever seen the movie Best in Show? It it is... um, uh, this mockumentary that Christopher Guest uh, made, I don't know when it came out, I guess it was maybe 10 years ago now, and um, it's, a, it's about these people with their pets, with all these different couples and people who have these animals, these dogs, that they're trying to go and compete in this West, the Westminster Dog Show. It's um, you know dry, goofy humor. Excuse me. And uh, I was told all about this, that this, this movie is hilarious. It's amazing. It's like, you're going to love it. And so one night I went out and rented it uh, and brought it home and watched it by myself. And because I'm so cool when I, was, you know, when I was in high school watching movies by myself. And um, after I watched it, uh, I thought, you know, it was okay. It wasn't like great, but I could see how people would think it was funny. And then, like a few months after the fact, uh, I happened. We happened to be watching it with a group of people, especially with people that really liked it. And so they were laughing at all the parts that were funny, and I found myself laughing out loud at those same parts and the parts that they were starting to quote. We were all starting to quote together, and it was like the movie became so much more entertaining and so much greater. But nothing about the movie changed. It was just the presence of other people. Why is that? Why did just the presence of other people enhance my movie experience? Well, here's another question for you. Uh, Why is it that immediately after something good happens, you want people to know about it? You know, like you get a good score on your test or whatever, like call your parents, you want to, you want to tell somebody. Or, or you, you get into uh, the club that you wanted or the sorority or the fraternity that you want and you immediately put it on Facebook for everybody to see. Or, you know, like when um, Catherine and I got engaged, uh, we spent like the next two hours like in this park calling everybody and like telling everybody. It's like scrolling through the phone. It's like, she said yes. Ah! Okay, I got to go. I got to go. She said yes. Ah! Okay, I got to go. <laughs> You know, and when we when we had our daughter, like for for like the next hour in the hospital room, I'm like texting everybody I know. It's like she's here. Here's the wait. Why is that? That we have this instinct to want to share those experiences with other people. Why? That's the question. 
And I think it is because we are hardwired for relationships. We are intrinsically, inescapably relational. I can also prove this to you sort of the negative way, sort of the, the, the negative side of this it proves that we're, we're um, built for relationships as well. And if you think about somebody who has really broken the law, like really messed up, what is like one of the most severe forms of, of punishment and torture for someone? Solitary confinement. Force them to be alone. And they've actually done studies that the longer somebody is, is alone in solitary confinement, that, that, that they actually start to go insane and start physically breaking down. You start to break down the, when you are by yourself and not in relationships with each other. Or to actually make it personal, uh, this is why for us, loneliness is so terrible. This is why everybody just assumes loneliness is bad. You know, if you were to ask somebody how you're doing and they said, I'm lonely, you would say... Uh, you're not doing well then, right? I mean, this is why when you walk into Central and uh, there's tons of people eating and you don't have anybody to sit with and eat with, it's like the most awkward, weirdest feeling ever. (laughs) This happened to me this week and I just was like, I just felt so small and (laughs) just sit by myself in the corner, suck my thumb. And uh, I don't know why. But this is the point, right? I mean, y'all, y'all remember the movie Castaway? Yeah. Tom Hanks, he's strapped, strapped. He's, he's, he's stuck on this desert, deserted island. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. He's on this deserted island. He doesn't have any community. And what does he do? He starts talking to a volleyball and names it Wilson, right? I mean, he can't escape relationships. He can't escape the instinct to want to be in relationships with other people. This is because we are made in the image of an us. We are made in the image of a trinity. And so, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean for you personally? What does this mean for you practically? This means that you can stop feeling guilty about wanting to be married. The desire to want to be in a relationship does not make you less spiritual. It does not make you less mature. It actually means that you are operating with the design of who you are. You were built for relationships. So you, you do not need to be embarrassed by the feeling of, I, I actually want this. Because you were made for it. Now let me talk to the ladies in the room for a second. Because, because my guess is you are, you are hearing a message here at App, either explicitly or implicitly, that for you to get married is to sell out. You know, in, in a progressive academic setting, there, there is pressure on you ladies to, to push back marriage in the sense of at this point in your life, you need to go out there because this is going to, marriage is going to stunt your career. It's going to delay your success and your, the goals that you would have for each other. And so um, marriage is going to only hold you back right now. Now, I'm all for ladies going out and making radical impact in the world and having wildly successful careers. Do not hear me say, I think you need to get in the kitchen and get pregnant (laughs) and take your shoes off because that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. I am saying this, that you don't have to feel embarrassed or guilty for wanting a relationship with someone because you were built for it. You were made in the image of a community. Okay, what about the guys? 
What does this passage say to us? Well, you know deep down that you want meaningful relationships too. And so maturity for you in college is going to look like actually pursuing those relationships. And I don't mean just romantic ones. I mean even just meaningful friendships. Because, guys, you know it is our instinct to sideline our desire for real relationships and real intimacy with other people and instead to substitute it for recreation and joking around and competing and just kind of doing our own thing. And so what maturity is going to look like for you is to actually begin talking to other human beings in a meaningful way. Let me make this a little bit more explicit. Turn off the Xbox and talk to another human being. I'm getting applause. And this doesn't mean, and Facebook chat and Halo and World of Warcraft doesn't count. These are not real avenues of talking to people. But that's what maturity is going to look like for you guys, is actually embracing the call to move towards getting to know other people. Because you know that you want it too. So this is what we learn about God, is that he is a trinity. And then what we learn about ourselves is that we are made in the image of a trinity, which means that we are inherently relational. Okay? So that's the first thing. What's the second thing that we learn about God? The second thing is that he is a creator. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we get this picture that God is the divine artist who is creating everything out of nothing and he's, and he's making the world a beautiful place. So if you look at verse 26, 26 it says, Y'all are filthy. No. Sex isn't like two months, so we'll get there in a little bit. Verse 26. It says, he created them. He created them. And if you jump down to verse 31, God looks at everything that he has made and he assesses it. And he says, look, it is very good. Now look, all kidding aside, I know that there are many people in this room who totally don't agree and buy into the whole the Bible's explanation for the origins of the world. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not going to try to argue for creationism in this context. If you want to get coffee or lunch with me, we can talk about it all you want. Uh, I just simply want to enter into the assumptions of the Bible and try to work out the implications and see if it makes sense of our world. Okay? If you go to the New Testament and, and look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can flip there or I'll just read it. Um, in, in verse 1, Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy starts talking about these people who are teaching something that is crazy. And let me just read it to you. He says this, The Spirit clearly says that in latter time, later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Okay, if you pause right there, you're reading this and you're like, what in the world were these people teaching? I mean, he says that they, they've abandoned the faith, they're following demons, they're teaching demonic things, that their, their consciences have been seared as with hot irons. I mean, you think, man, these people are going around saying, look, God has said, if you want to follow him, you need to chainsaw your mother's heads off. And you're like, this sounds really creepy and demonic. And here's what he says. He tells you what these folks were teaching. Verse three, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. 
which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. And then verse 4, for everything God created is good. This is what he says in Genesis, right? He looks at everything that he makes and he says, it is good. And here are these people saying, don't get married, don't eat this type of food. And Paul hits like the red alert button and freaks out and says, no, God has made everything good and it is for us to enjoy in grateful response for his generosity to us. Everything is for you to enjoy. And so if that is true, that all things are created good, the implications of that are enormous, Here's a couple of implications. Most of you hate your body. You obsess about wanting to change the shape and the size of it. Or uh, you love your body way too much and just are in, the, in front of the mirror all the time. Or if you walk by a building, you know, like with the windows that have reflections, <laughs> people think you're looking in, and you're not looking through the mirror. You're looking at the window to see yourself, right? You're not looking through the window, but you're looking at the window. But, but, but this is what this is saying. He, he is saying, look, God is saying, I have made your body. It is good. It is not God, so you do not need to worship it and to love it and obsess over it. And it is not bad, so you do not need to hate it. It is good. But what about sex? Because some of you do think that sex is dirty, that it's shameful, that it's gross. I mean, I have heard students refer to sex as doing the nasty. If you think about it, if you think about it, as silly as that is, at least the language that we're using on the street is that it's nasty. I mean, we think of it kind of like cookout or Taco Bell, where it's like, we know it's terrible for us, but I still want it. You know, like it's 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 got a uh, it's got a low health code score, but I still really would like some. You know. But this is what this is saying, is that sex is a gift. It is made by God, and therefore it is good. It is good. And so many of us think it's shameful, and and we're thinking incorrectly about that. So, okay, if that is what we learn about God, that he is the creator, what does that mean for us? What do we learn about ourselves then? Well, no surprise, we are are a part of his creation. We are the creator. You know, creation. We are the created. But it's actually not that intuitive if you look at this passage. But we are not just a part of creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. The pinnacle. Okay. Uh, Here's what this means. um, In Genesis chapter 1, after God creates something, he takes a day, creates something, and he looks at it and says, it's good. Then he has another day, he creates something, says it is good. And then on the sixth day, he does something he's never done before, which means that he, he creates something in his own image. And that's when he looks at it, and if you look at it in verse uh, 31, he says it is not just good, it's very good. Meaning that human beings, of the whole sort of creational story, human beings are at the apex of it, the pinnacle of his creative work. Which means that there is more beauty and more glory and, in a sense, more of God himself in people more so than there is in Grandfather Mountain. There's a, there's a, um, 
author that I love to read. His name's Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor. He's a poet. And, and I just want to read you a little excerpt from his book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Uh, he's kind of reflecting about creation. And, and here's what he says. Um, he says, uh, the Genesis stories of creation begin with heaven and earth. You know, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It begins with heaven and earth, but that turns out to be merely a warm-up exercise for the main event, the creation of human life, man and woman, designated image of God. If you want to look at creation full, creation at its highest, look at the person next to you. Here's what he's getting at. If you think... If you see more beauty at Twisted Falls or at Hebron, more than you do at the person sitting next to you in the apple cart, then something is off with you. Or if you see more beauty when you're out at a hike looking at the mountains from the parkway, more than you do see beauty in your like, next-door neighbor, something is off. This is because human beings are the pinnacle of creation. I mean, if you think about it, this is really why pornography is so addicting and so alluring. I mean, there is no other photograph of, of, of an aspect of creation that people really get addicted to. It's not, it's not like people are sitting around looking at pictures and images of aardvarks or, or you know, whatever, <laughs> right? It, it, it is why, I mean, this is why, this is why pornography is so addicting, it's so alluring, and it activates all of this stuff in us. Is because you are looking at the image of God, the apex of creation, unclothed. If this is true, if this is true that people are the apex, that human beings are the pinnacle of creation, then this really does change everything. This changes everything because this means that people are not commodities for you to use. People are not objects that you get to utilize in order to make you feel happy and to feel good. And if we really started to believe this, do you know how radically we would change? Do you know how radically we would do life differently? We would not do these random hookups with each other. We wouldn't participate in these random makeout sessions at parties. Because what we are really doing in those moments, we would realize, is that we are really just using this other person in order to make us feel good. You know, if we really believe this, that people are the apex of creation, that they are unbelievably valuable, we would change the way that we talk about each other. We wouldn't snub each other. We wouldn't ignore each other. We wouldn't lob grenades at that party that disagrees with our position. We wouldn't label people with dehumanizing language like slut or pothead or white trash or something else. We would actually respect and value and give the proper dignity to people because they are made in the image of God, the apex of creation. So let me ask you this, um, and I'm going to conclude here. If, if this is true, if you're following the logic here, Okay, Matt, we're made for relationships, apparently, but why are my relationships the place where I feel the most confused and angry and betrayed and hurt? And, Matt, if people are the apex of creation, why are they the hardest part of creation to deal with for me? Well, here's the answer. It's because every one of us 
And every one of our relationships were built to orbit around the central reality of God as our creator. We, our entire lives, were intended to be built around God, and all of our relationships were intended to be centered around God. But as the story of the Bible continues, we see that people no longer wanted to orbit and center around God, but we wanted to disconnect from God and do our own thing. And so if you think about the solar system, you've got eight or nine planets. It was nine when I was growing up. I don't know what Pluto is anymore. I think, they, I think Pluto's not a planet anymore to y'all, but it is to me. So you've got eight or nine planets orbiting around a central reality, which is the sun. Now, what if that one sort of central gravitational force that, was, that everything was orbiting around, all these other planets said, I don't want to orbit around you, we're going to orbit around other things. So Mars starts to orbit around Earth, and Venus starts to orbit around Pluto. What would happen? Chaos and destruction, and the solar system would explode. And that is you know, a, a silly picture of what really has happened with humanity, where we were intended and built to orbit around God, but we said, I want to orbit around my own thing. And the fallout has been chaos and destruction and broken relationships. So where do we get the healing then? How, do we, how does this whole thing get fixed together? Or are we just going to leave depressed? The solution, as always, is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the only solution to fix a world that is falling apart in relationships that are broken. How does that work? The gospel is, is that God himself left the comforts and the beauty and the glory of heaven to enter into the chaos and the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves, to take on humanity and actually enter into it. And then what he did is he went to the cross And at the cross, what is happening? Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a relational fracturing, a relational rupturing within the Trinity. And what is going on is that God the Father is casting out God the Son so that you, when you put your faith in Jesus, can actually be brought in. The sun is being cast out so that you can be brought in. The sun is being broken so that you and for all of your broken relationships can actually be put back together again. Now, we're going to talk about this a whole lot more in just a few weeks. And so if this sounds sweet to you, if this, if this sounds like, man, I want to know more about that. I want to know more how I can be put back together and how my relationships can be put back together. The solution is Jesus. To fix your eyes on him who by his pure grace said, I will sacrifice everything. I will be broken. I will be torn to shreds so that all of your relationships which are broken and torn to shreds can be put back together again. That is the solution. Jesus not only... Jesus didn't die... I'll say it again. Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sins. Jesus died to make all that was broken whole again. Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sins. He died to put all that was broken uh, back together again. So really the invitation for you tonight and for this semester is to continue to fix your eyes on Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time. But as you focus on him, your life and your heart begins to get orbiting in its proper place back around him as your creator, and everything will slowly begin to get fixed and put back together again. That is the invitation. Pray with me. Father, for your goodness, for your kindness, 
for the promise that we have in Jesus, for the person that we have in Jesus, I pray that you would begin to piece back together our relationships, which really are fragmented and really are broken. Um, Give us the faith uh, to trust in the gospel. That is our hope. That is our prayer. Uh, Would you do that now? We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.